History of England, Chapter Thirteen, Part Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Chapter Thirteen, Part Three. It is not likely that, even if the Scottish bishops had, as William recommended, done all that meekness and prudence could do to conciliate their countrymen, episcopacy could, under any modification, have been maintained. It was indeed asserted by writers of that generation, and has been repeated by writers of our generation, that the Presbyterians were not, before the Revolution, the majority of the people in Scotland. But in this assertion there is an obvious fallacy. The effective strength of sex is not to be ascertained merely by counting heads. An established church, a dominant church, a church which has the exclusive possession of civil honors and emoluments, will always rank among its nominal members multitudes who have no religion at all, multitudes who, though not destitute of religion, attend little to theological disputes, and have no scruple about conforming to the mode of worship which happens to be established and multitudes who have scruples about conforming, but whose scruples have yielded to worldly motives. On the other hand, every member of an oppressed church is a man who has a very decided preference for that church. A person who, in the time of Diocletian, joined in celebrating the Christian mysteries, might reasonably be supposed to be a firm believer in Christ. But it would be a very great mistake to imagine that one single pontiff or augur in the Roman Senate was a firm believer in Jupiter. In Mary's reign, everybody who attended the secret meetings of the Protestants was a real Protestant, but hundreds of thousands went to Mass who, as appeared before she had been dead a month, were not real Roman Catholics. If, under kings of the House of Stuart, when a Presbyterian was excluded from political power, and from the learned professions, was daily annoyed by informers, by tyrannical magistrates, by licentious dragoons, and was in danger of being hanged if he heard a sermon in the open air, the population of Scotland was not very unequally divided between Episcopalians and Presbyterians. The rational inference is that more than nineteen-twentieths of those Scotchmen whose conscience was interested in the matter were Presbyterians, and not one Scotchman in twenty was decidedly and on conviction an Episcopalian. Against such odds the bishops had but little chance, and whatever chance they had made haste to throw away, some of them because they sincerely believed that their allegiance was still due to James, others probably because they apprehended that William would not have the power, even if he had the will, to serve them, and that nothing but a counter-revolution in the state could avert a revolution in the church. As the new King of Scotland could not be at Edinburgh during the sitting of the Scottish Convention, a letter from him to the estates was prepared with great skill. In this document he professed warm attachment to the Protestant religion, but gave no opinion touching those questions about which Protestants were divided. He had observed, he said, with great satisfaction, that many of the Scottish nobility and gentry, with whom he had conferred in London, were inclined to a union of the two British kingdoms. He was sensible how much such a union would conduce to happiness of both, and he would do all in his power towards the accomplishing of so good a work. It was necessary that he should allow a large discretion to his confidential agents at Edinburgh. The private instruction with which he furnished those persons could not be minute, but were highly judicious. He charged them to ascertain to the best of their power the real sense of the convention, and to be guided by it. 
they must remember that the first object was to settle the government. To that object every other object, even the Union, must be postponed. A treaty between two independent legislatures, distant from each other several days' journey, must necessarily be a work of time, and the throne could not safely remain vacant while the negotiations were pending. It was therefore important that His Majesty's agents should be on their guard against the arts of persons who, under pretense of promoting the Union, might really be contriving only to prolong the interregnum. If the Convention should be bent on establishing the Presbyterian form of church government, William desired that his friends would do all in their power to prevent the triumphant sect from retaliating what it had suffered. The person by whose advice William appears to have been at this time chiefly guided as to Scotch politics was a Scotchman of great abilities and attainments, Sir James Dalrymple of Stair, the founder of a family eminently distinguished at the bar, on the bench, in the Senate, in diplomacy, in arms, and in letters, but distinguished also by misfortunes and misdeeds which have furnished poets and novelists with material for the darkest and most heart-rending tales. Already Sir James had been in mourning for more than one strange and terrible death. One of his sons had died by poison. One of his daughters had poignarded her bridegroom on the wedding night. One of his grandsons had, in boyish sport, been slain by another. Savage libelers asserted, and some of the superstitious vulgar believed, that calamities so portentous were the consequences of some connection between the unhappy race and the powers of darkness. Sir James had a wry neck, and he was reproached with this misfortune as if it had been a crime, and was told that it marked him out as a man doomed to the gallows. His wife, a woman of great ability, art, and spirit, was popularly named the Witch of Endor. It was gravely said that she had cast fearful spells on those whom she hated, and that she had been seen in the likeness of a cat seated on the cloth of state by the side of the Lord High Commissioner. The man, however, over whose roof so many curses appeared to hang, did not, as far as we can now judge, fall short of that very low standard of morality which was generally attained by politicians of his age and nation. In force of mind and extent of knowledge he was superior to them all. In his youth he had borne arms, he had then been a professor of philosophy, he had then studied law, and had become by general acknowledgment the greatest jurist that his country had produced. In the days of the protectorate he had been a judge. After the restoration he had made his peace with the royal family, had sat in the privy council, and had presided with unrivalled ability in the court of session. He had doubtless borne a share in many unjustifiable acts, but there were limits which he never passed. He had a wonderful power of giving to any proposition which it suited him to maintain a plausible aspect of legality, and even of justice, and this power he frequently abused. But he was not, like many of those among whom he lived, impudently and unscrupulously servile. Shame or conscience generally restrained him from committing any bad action for which his rare ingenuity could not frame a specious defence and he was seldom in his place at the council board when anything outrageously unjust or cruel was to be done. His moderation at length gave offence to the court. He was deprived of his high office, and found himself in so disagreeable a situation that he retired to Holland. There he employed himself in correcting the great work on jurisprudence which has preserved his memory fresh down to our own time. In his banishment he tried to gain the favour of his fellow exiles, who naturally regarded him with suspicion. He protested, and perhaps with truth, that his hands were pure from the blood of the persecuted covenanters. 
He made a high profession of religion, prayed much, and observed weekly days of fasting and humiliation. He even consented, after much hesitation, to assist with his advice and his credit the unfortunate enterprise of Argyle. When that enterprise had failed, a prosecution was instituted at Edinburgh against Dalrymple, and his estates would doubtless have been confiscated, had they not been saved by an artifice which subsequently became common among the politicians of Scotland. His eldest son and heir apparent, John, took the side of the government, supported the dispensing power, declared against the test, and accepted the place of Lord Advocate, when Sir George Mackenzie, after holding out through ten years of foul drudgery, at length showed signs of flagging. The services of the younger Dalrymple were rewarded by a remission of the forfeiture which the offences of the elder had incurred. Those services, indeed, were not to be despised. For Sir John, though inferior to his father in depth and extent of legal learning, was no common man. His knowledge was great and various, his parts were quick, and his eloquence was singularly ready and graceful. To sanctity he made no pretensions. Indeed, Episcopalians and Presbyterians agreed in regarding him as a little better than an atheist. During some months Sir John at Edinburgh affected to condemn the disloyalty of his unhappy parent Sir James, and Sir James at Leyden told his Puritan friends how deeply he lamented the wicked compliances of his unhappy child Sir John. The revolution came and brought a large increase of wealth and honors to the House of Stair. The son promptly changed sides and cooperated ably and zealously with the father. Sir James established himself in London for the purpose of giving advice to William on Scotch affairs. Sir John's post was in the Parliament House at Edinburgh. He was not likely to find any equal among the debaters there, and was prepared to exert all his powers against the dynasty which he had lately served. By the large party which was zealous for the Calvinistic church government, John Dalrymple was regarded with incurable distrust and dislike. It was therefore necessary that another agent should be employed to manage that party. Such an agent was George Melville, Lord Melville, a nobleman connected by affinity with the unfortunate Monmouth, and with that Leslie who had unsuccessfully commanded the Scotch army against Cromwell at Dunbar. Melville had always been accounted a Whig and a Presbyterian. Those who speak of him most favorably have not ventured to ascribe to him eminent intellectual endowments or exalted public spirit but he appears from his letters to have been by no means deficient in that homely prudence, the want of which has often been fatal to men of brighter genius and of purer virtue. That prudence had restrained him from going very far in opposition to the tyranny of the Stuarts, but he had listened while his friends talked about resistance, and therefore, when the Rye House plot was discovered, thought it expedient to retire to the Continent. In his absence he was accused of treason, and was convicted on evidence which would not have satisfied any impartial tribunal. He was condemned to death, his honours and lands were declared forfeit, his arms were torn with contumely out of the herald's book, and his domain swelled the estate of the cruel and rapacious Perth. The fugitive, meanwhile, with characteristic wariness, lived quietly on the continent, and discountenanced the unhappy projects of his kinsman Monmouth but cordially approved of the enterprise of the Prince of Orange. Illness had prevented Melville from sailing with the Dutch expedition, but he arrived in London a few hours after the new sovereigns had been proclaimed there. William instantly sent him down to Edinburgh, in the hope, it should seem, that the Presbyterians would be disposed to listen to moderate counsels proceeding from a man who was attached to their cause, and who had suffered for it. 
Melville's second son, David, who had inherited through his mother the title of Earl of Leven, and who had acquired some military experience in the service of the Elector of Brandenburg, had the honour of being the bearer of a letter from the new King of Scotland to the Scottish Convention. James had entrusted the conduct of his affairs in Scotland to John Graham, Viscount Dundee, and Colin Lindsay, Earl of Balcarras. Dundee had commanded a body of Scottish troops which had marched into England to oppose the Dutch, but he had found, in the inglorious campaign which had been fatal to the dynasty of Stuart, no opportunity of displaying the courage and military skill which those who most detest his merciless nature allow him to have possessed. He lay with his forces not far from Watford, when he was informed that James had fled from Whitehall, and that Feversham had ordered all the royal army to disband. The Scottish regiments were thus left, without pay or provision, in the midst of a foreign and indeed a hostile nation. Dundee, it is said, wept with grief and rage. Soon, however, more cheering intelligence arrived from various quarters. William wrote a few lines to say that, if the Scots would remain quiet, he would pledge his honour for their safety, and some hours later it was known that James had returned to his capital. Dundee repaired instantly to London. There he met his friend Balcarras, who had just arrived from Edinburgh. Balcarras, a man distinguished by his handsome person and by his accomplishments, had, in his youth, affected the character of a patriot, but had deserted the popular cause, had accepted a seat in the Privy Council, had become a tool of Perth and Melfort, and had been one of the commissioners who were appointed to execute the office of treasurer when Queensbury was disgraced for refusing to betray the interests of the Protestant religion. Dundee and Balcarras went together to Whitehall, and had the honour of accompanying James in his last walk, up and down the Mall. He told them that he intended to put his affairs in Scotland under their management. "'You, my lord Balcarras, must undertake the civil business, and you, my lord Dundee, shall have a commission for me to command the troops.' The two noblemen vowed that they would prove themselves deserving of his confidence, and disclaimed all thought of making their peace with the Prince of Orange. On the day following James left Whitehall forever, and the Prince of Orange arrived at St. James's. Both Dundee and Balcarras swelled the crowd which thronged to greet the deliverer, and were not ungraciously received. Both were well known to him. Dundee had served under him on the continent, and the first wife of Balcarras had been a lady of the House of Orange, and had worn, on her wedding-day, a superb pair of emerald earrings, the gift of her cousin, the Prince. The Scottish Whigs, then assembled in great numbers at Westminster, earnestly pressed William to prescribe by name four or five men who had, during the evil times, borne a conspicuous part in the proceedings of the Privy Council at Edinburgh. Dundee and Balcarras were particularly mentioned. But the Prince had determined that, as far as his power extended, all the past should be covered with a general amnesty, and absolutely refused to make any declarations which would drive to despair even the most guilty of his uncle's servants. Balcarras went repeatedly to St. James's, had several audiences of William, professed deep respect for his highness, and owed that King James had committed great errors, but would not promise to concur in a vote of deposition. William gave no sign of displeasure, but said at parting, "'Take care, my lord, that you keep within the law, for if you break it, you must expect to be left to it.'" Dundee seems to have been less ingenious. He employed the mediation of Burnett, opened a negotiation with St. James's, declared himself willing to acquiesce in the new order of things, obtained from William a promise of protection, and promised in return to live peaceably. 
Such credit was given to his professions that he was suffered to travel down to Scotland under the escort of a troop of cavalry. Without such an escort, the man of blood, whose name was never mentioned but with a shudder at the hearth of any Presbyterian family, would, at that conjuncture, have had but a perilous journey through Berwickshire and the Lothians. February was drawing to a close when Dundee and Balcarras reached Edinburgh. They had some hope that they might be at the head of a majority in the convention. They therefore exerted themselves vigorously to consolidate and animate their party. They assured the rigid royalists, who had a scruple about sitting in an assembly convoked by a usurper, that the rightful king particularly wished no friend of hereditary monarchy to be absent. More than one waverer was kept steady by being assured in confident terms that a speedy restoration was inevitable. Gordon had determined to surrender the castle, and had begun to remove his furniture, but Dundee and Balcarras prevailed on him to hold out some time longer. They informed him that they had received from St. Germain's full powers to adjourn the convention to Stirling, and that, if things went ill at Edinburgh, those powers would be used. End of chapter 13, part 3